0: I'm Kyle Salmon
1: and I'm Corey Astle.
0: Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 26, we read A Concise Guide to Conservatism by Russell Kirk from 1957.
1: Russell Kirk was born near the railroad yards at Plymouth, Michigan in 1918, and he lived much of his life at his ancestral place called Piety Hill in the village of Mecosta, Michigan. After receiving his bachelor's degree from Michigan State College, which is now Michigan State University, Kirk studied the politics of John Randolph of Roanoke for his master's degree at Duke University. Kirk's research on Randolph's politics led him to Edmund Burke. whose principles would strongly influence Kirk's subsequent thought. Following service in the Army during World War II, Kirk became an instructor in the history of civilization at Michigan State University. He took a leave of absence from teaching to research the history of the principal thinkers of England and America at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. The resulting manuscript earned Kirk the highest arts degree from the University of St. Andrews. Later, Henry Regnery published this lengthy work as The Conservative Mind in 1953, a very famous book. The book became one of the most widely reviewed and discussed studies of political ideas in America and catapulted Kirk to national prominence. Following the success of The Conservative Mind, Kirk resigned his teaching post and moved to Mecosta, Michigan to pursue a career as an independent writer and lecturer. He continued to publish books at a remarkable rate during his career. In fact, he authored 32 books on topics such as political theory, history of ideas, education, cultural criticism, and supernatural tales. When not in his library in Mecosta, Kirk lectured at colleges and conferences around the country on political thought and practice, modern culture, educational theory, literary criticism, and social themes. For nearly 30 years, Kirk was married to his wife, Annette, and they had four daughters. Kirk passed away on April 29th, 1994. And so it's worth mentioning at the outset that the name of our podcast, Conservative Minds, is sort of a hat tip to this famous work by by Russell Kirk, uh, The Conservative Mind. And as listeners may be interested to or wondering why we didn't read that book, well, we still might, but having read it myself, uh, it's tough. <laughs> it, it, uh, he, he has a lot of what I call drive-by name dro- dropping, and it's a whole lot of old like, colonial area, uh, era, sorry, colonial colonial era Americans and um, a lot of like British MPs from the 1600s and, and that sort of thing. So uh, it's really tough to follow his
0: line of thinking. Hearing that it was a PhD dissertation, though, that, that makes more sense because it's a different audience you're aiming at. And yeah. those folks would have heard all those people and read their works. And, you know, would, yeah. Made more sense to them. This book, on the other hand, very accessible, aimed at the general public and uh, boils down a lot of, a lot of points in a pretty short time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In the introduction by Wilfred McClay, he describes Kirk's outlook on conservatism briefly. And this, the line that stood out to me is, for Kirk, it's a disposition of grateful wonder at the miracle of our existence, mm-hmm. calling us to acknowledge the sources of our being and strive to live in respectful and loving harmony with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of a, um, a spiritual conservatism, not so much a, uh, a list of policy positions. Mm-hmm. But of course, I mean, those these ideas definitely lead to those policies. If you think about them for a minute, yeah. but it's, um, I thought that was a good way of putting it when, when I went back and having read the thing, yeah, it's, um, he's, he's at, he's operating at a, a higher level than the individual, uh, this bill or this policy.
1: Yeah. I think, I think that was a good description. And, and I think. Kirk was famous more than anything among conservatives because he was, he was just writing at a time where there just was not a lot of people who cared much about conservatism. And then he, I mean, even the other authors we've read from the 1940s and fifties, their focus is more almost anything anti-socialism where he was really, he spent his entire career trying to distill what, what does it mean to be a conservative? And he obviously spent a lot of time thinking and studying and researching what, what would a true conservatism look like? So even in the first chapter, I think he does a great job of kind of summing up what he views as the main, the core principles of conservatism. And we should read these and, and talk about them a little bit. Mm-hmm. He starts with, men and nations are governed by moral laws that have origin in divine justice. And that's obviously something that liberals don't believe. And even if they mm-hmm. believe in God, they don't really view law as metaphysical morality. Instead, they they view it as basically interest groups <laughs> struggling to maintain privilege or push others down or, you know, get what's theirs.
0: Yeah, it's a, the moral versus just amoral view of what law even is.
1: Mm-hmm. So he also says, we have a moral debt to our ancestors who bestowed on us our civilization so, and this is obviously a, a nod towards Eben Burke. You know, we have a, I think in episode seven, uh, listeners go back and listen to it if you haven't. Um, I think one of the main takeaways is this idea that we have a, that we're part of a, a, a public trust that our ancestors have passed on to us this civilization and our government. And it's our duty as to be a good stewards of that, uh, that legacy and then also to pass it on to our kids.
0: Yeah, that Burkean idea is, you see, it seems like the the left has one half of that where they say we have to be concerned about future generations, you know, usually in, when we're talking about environmental questions. And then the right often comes in, well, we have to, you know, this is the way we've done it. These are the traditions. But really Burke is discussing both of those things, is that we're just one spot on a continuum that we not only have to learn from the wisdom of our ancestors, but also pass on more wisdom to those mm-hmm. who come after us, you know, and it, mm-hmm. For me, that feels like a place in the world. It feels like yeah, it's yeah. a good thing to be a part of a continuum. It's a mm-hmm. good thing not to be like so many utopians on the left. They think they're the well, oh, we've we've come up with the idea now. This is the this is how it all works. Everything came before is trash. Everything going forward is based on me. Mm-hmm. That's I don't know, that seems insane to most conservatives. And I mean this idea that we're inheriting a lot of good stuff, we're building on it, tweaking it, adding to it, and passing it on to the next. That makes sense with how I feel like the world works. It actually Mm -hmm. gives me a great deal of comfort, knowing we can't screw it up that badly.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you named uh, environmentalism. I think that's a little bit of an anomaly, I feel like, because uh, taking care of the, the planet and our environment does seem like it would be more of a conservative value. It's, uh, it's, it's always been interesting to me that the question of, you know, how, how did that fall into, you know, now it's become a tribal you know, yes. political polemical issue. And so at this point, it you know, it's, it's not based much on, on, you know, ideology or philosophy and more just based on, they think Republicans are knuckle dragging Neanderthals and Republicans think that, or, you know, conservatives think that, <laughs> that the liberals are just, this is just a, a Trojan horse to impose you know socialism on the economy i think you know what maybe there's a little bit of truth (laughs) a
0: little bit (laughs) but you're right i think it's tribal Uh, the second point kirk makes in this list of 10 uh, i thought was one of the more interesting ones variety and diversity are the characteristics of a high civilization Mm -hmm. and we usually hear talk of diversity from the left usually in diversity in like what you look like or where you come from but in talking about Why government should be small and why people should be allowed to figure out their way for themselves. He he does emphasize several times throughout this book the idea that you know the kind of top down collectivism smashes diversity, which again it's weird that that's associated. diversity is associated with the left now as is collectivism when they're opposites. You know, and a society where there's different people with different ideas doing different things or doing the same things in different ways, that is a society. You know, in order for those conditions to come about, what, what we need is the kind of society that Kirk is describing here, one of, of small and limited government. So I I think that's something we, as conservatives, should emphasize more, is that if you want true diversity, if you want people to be able to do different things and, and places to be different from each other, you, you can't have the command economy, you can't have the top-down rules.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I thought that was... And he, We'll come back to, it, but that was, I thought that was a great point.
1: Yeah, it jumped out at me too because it seems to be in tension a little bit with, you know, traditionalism and the idea that the sort of the Edmund Burke approach to, yeah, we can have change, but it needs to be very gradual and, you know, uh, there's some wisdom in the in the past and, and so I, I was trying to get get my head around what he meant by diversity too, and but that makes a lot of sense what you just said. All right uniformity and absolute equality are the death of all real vigor and freedom and i guess this goes to your point about uh, diversity is that you know if what we're trying to do is turn everyone into you know a cookie cutter comrade it's the death of freedom and and uh, innovation and individual thought and and if your expectation is that there's Regardless of how hard you work or how smartly you work, the outcome will always be the same, no matter what. Like, you know, if you're a worker in the federal government, <laughs> basically, like you're going to be GS 11, step six next year, regardless of how you perform. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really tough to, to generate any enthusiasm for, for innovation or, or what he calls real vigor. This is obviously something we've talked about in other books. Mm -hmm. Another one, uh, just this goes right back to our book with Thomas Sowell. He says, uh, justice means that all people have equal rights before the law, but that equality should not extend to the equality of condition. So you, you have equal rights, but not a right to equal outcomes. And that's a clear delineation between right and left. It's just a recognition. And this is probably also plays into the diversity question is we have a diversity of outcomes, you know, some people perform at a higher level and so they actually will make a little bit more money maybe. And others who, who are free to be content with a lower standard of living, or at least one that's more modest. The expectation that conservatives have is that the starting line will be even and we'll get as close as we can to Everyone jumping at the same starting gun, versus this obsession with does everyone have an equal outcome? Did did so and so get a chance to win? You know, Mm -hmm. even though she's super slow, that sort
0: of thing. So, his fourth point is another one we've heard a lot: Um, property and freedom are inseparably connected. Yeah, economic leveling is not economic progress.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's I, I think just about everybody we've listened to. We, we've read this through this whole podcast. I mean, with the exception of, in part, possibly Pat Buchanan, everybody's emphasized property rights. And there, and there's a reason for that. And, and Kirk later in the book talks about how all of the people that came before him emphasized that one of the main reasons we create government in the first place is to protect property.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You live in a state of nature, anybody can take your stuff.
1: Yeah you, yeah, you can't
0: own land in the state of nature because somebody else will just walk on that, you plant some crops, they'll harvest them. You know. Yeah. yeah. So, and that seems basic, but it's important. And it, um, like how how uh, our reading with Weaver, he called it the last metaphysical right. I think Kirk is equally fervent in the defense of private property and says you can't have civilization without it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really liked that, his point there and and how he said that all political theorists when they're harkening back to you know the state of nature regardless of conservative or liberal or you know where they land on the political spectrum they all viewed the you know the beginning of government as the protection of property rights and and so i encourage listeners if you haven't listened to our john locke episode i think that's episode 4 to go go listen to that but he's also but kirk also points to like Rousseau, who certainly was not conservative and i mean even freaking Karl marx you know they I mean property is uh, a core function of, of government i mean the question is do we get private property or is the property owned by the quote-unquote collective but
0: that's another point he gets into too and i think even though this isn't an explicitly anti-communist book, any any conservative book from the 50s is going to be anti-communist. So he's talking about, well, how is it different in these places that say we're going to abolish property? He's saying they're not abolishing property. They're just taking it. Mm-hmm. They still have it. It still exists. And yeah. they are still they still have the right to exclude and the right to build and all of the different parts that make up ownership. It's just now it's a, a, the state owns it, which sounds like... We all own it, but ends up being a few people at the top, a self-select elite, control everything, Mm -hmm. right? And he makes a point that those people in a place like the Soviet Union are far more powerful than any property owner in the United States. Because, (laughs) yeah, I mean, property owners have to contend with the law sometimes, but when the law and the property are both on the same side, there's no one to stop you. You can do what you want. You know, if if you're in charge of a state factory, you can build however you want. Treat your workers however you want, pollute however you want, and the Soviet Union did pollute a lot. Mm-hmm. And they're still mm-hmm. they're still dealing with that in Russia, um, but you know, as compared to a private property owner here, you can you know you've got plenty of rights, but you you will eventually run afoul of the law if you take it too far. So, mm-hmm. all the talk of you know property being in opposition to human freedom, he says, it, not only is it not true, it just I mean, experience shows us in societies that, that act on that idea, it ends up decreasing human freedom.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've talked about before, you know, property is basically a, a sphere of independence, a, a sphere of freedom that you have again, as long as you don't take it too far, but you know, here on my property, I can do, more or less do what I want with it. And there's nobody here to, to tell me what I have to do or, you know, within within reason what I can't do. So, but I think that's really profound. His line that that you read, uh, economic leveling is not economic progr- progress, because that is just a core tenet of the of the left and certainly of the current uh, Democratic Party. That moving towards uh, a economic equality that is the sign of economic progress and and the the great critique right now is because income inequality exists, therefore you know, we've stagnated. There is no longer any economic progress where I think as conservatives, we say, well, yeah, there's going to be inequality. Mm-hmm. The real question is, you know, with, uh, is, is economic growth? Is it, is the tide rising all the boats? And, you know, or do you have, if you're on the bottom rung, do you have access to some economic mobility? Now there, there could be some work to do there, but yeah, that's a very different approach than to say, you know, not not do you have opportunity for for mobility but do you have absolute uh, you know equality of outcomes and that's going to be their our guidepost for, for economic progress.
0: yeah, it's a weird difference of, you know when people on both sides see there's a bunch of poor people here a lot of people on the right will say that the problem is poverty and like you said stagnating poverty where you can't you can't get out the left isn't concerned so much with poverty as inequality. And that's mm-hmm. they, yeah. they, they sound the same at first, but really, they think there's as much problem that somebody's rich as there is that somebody's poor. Whereas we in the right are saying, you know, "Well, who cares if that guy's a billionaire? What are we doing about these people? You know, and what 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 can we do that will help them be able to get a little more?" And it, when you ask people about any, I think when you ask people about inequality, as you know, a, a thing that voters are concerned about. I don't think it's really that high. I think poverty concerns people, especially those who are in poverty. I think it's most Americans are really more concerned with that bottom end of the scale than the fact that somebody else is doing all right, has a big house Mm -hmm. with a swimming pool.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that income inequality is the obsession of the, the elite media. And so they cast their own views upon the white, you know, let's say the white working class. And, but when you have, actual polls and ask people what they're most concerned about income inequality is not one of top 100 i mean what they what they they talk about more more basic right in front of your face issues yeah and i think (laughs) they're worried about health care they're worried about immigration
0: yeah things that are more tangible and things that you can change as regards one person not as regards all of society you know a guy who's concerned about health care maybe because he doesn't have health insurance that's a concern that can be fixed by different means, but the guy's concerned mm-hmm. about income inequality. Like, well, what do you, well, how do you fix that? Short of uprooting all of society, right? I think I think a lot of it too is um, how Kirk talks about how the left is often neurotic, and I think a lot of people who are who are at the top of society and are concerned with income inequality are kind of projecting their own feelings of unworthiness. Exactly. And saying, you know, I'm doing great and I don't deserve it. You know, maybe they do deserve it. Maybe they're good at what they do, you know? Mm -hmm. Or maybe their dad wasn't and they inherited his money. I don't know, but somebody deserved it at some point. Where I think more on the right, you're going to say, yeah, I built this business and I do deserve it. I worked (laughs) hard. I got up at five in the morning every day and I, you know, worked 12 hour days. And it's just a, a different way of feeling about yourself. And it ends up being a projection onto the world. I mean, not to get it too much into armchair psychology, but I, I think that's a big part of it.
1: Yeah. As a philosophical matter too, I think on the right, I think you'd say, well, whether someone deserved it or not, in some metaphysical sense, it's good for all of us that Bill Gates built, you know, windows, you know, Microsoft, mm-hmm. <laughs> It, you know, we all benefit from, from standard oil. And Jay Rockefeller, you know, I mean, John D. Rockefeller. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe we would need some regulations, but you know, it's good for all of us that, well, maybe it's not good for all of us that Zuckerberg created Facebook, but the world benefits from it. And so even if we set aside the, the question of the normative question of does someone deserve it or not, we're all better off by someone exercising their talents in a, free market context so that you know we can all benefit from it anyway so the next one he goes to is uh, power and checks and balances he says the good state is one in which power is checked and balanced he points out that the you know the constitution is basically the most successful the u.s constitution is the most successful uh, conservative document in the history of the world of course i couldn't agree more mm-hmm he even has a cha- a full chapter. So this this was just part of chapter one. Some of these things we're naming, but he puts a full chapter. It looks like chapter seven, I think, mm-hmm. on what does it mean to have a, a just government? And he talks about the Constitution, inalienable rights, popular sovereignty, consent of the governed. You know, this is constitutionalism, separation of powers. That's those are conservative principles. They really are because it, as we've talked about, in, you know, in a prior episode. You know the the founders approached the creation of government. There, this is a new idea, and and the what they brought to the table is this this assumption of human nature. You know, humans will behave in a certain way, and when when they group together, there will be competing interests. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to pit those interests against each other. You know, we're going to we're going to structure the the government in such a way that one will always be pressing up against the other, but but they will act as a check on, on each other. I mean, again, that's, that's a very different approach than the left, which thinks that that uh, human nature is a blank slate and doesn't actually exist. Instead, it's, you know, the way humans behave or is all social construction that, you know, people behave the way they do, because that's, that's what the society compelled them to behave that way versus the founders. And we, we need to get to the federalist papers, which we will, but, these guys recognize no. that It would be great if all men were angels, but they're not. And so, yeah. as a result, we need to pit them against each other, and structure the government in such a way that makes it difficult for for one interest group or or some powerful madman to take control versus versus others.
0: That's where I, Kirk gets at something that is that really shows the genius of the Constitution too. Is it, it is a new, it was a new document when they made it, but it wasn't really new ideas. It was the distillation of hundreds of years of learning mm. he, he, he talks about the jewish understanding of morality the roman idea of law the christian concept of the dignity of man all of these things plus the the, the sustained experience of what happens when power is not checked and not balanced and not distributed you know the, what the founding fathers knew about english history and and, and the history of other nations it, it all went into that so when we, we think of the Constitution as starting America's laws fresh. It kind of. I mean, it was a new thing. I mean, it replaced the Articles of Confederation and, and started over. But it it wasn't it wasn't like these guys just came up with a utopian scheme out of nowhere. They were more like stewards of, you know, ancient wisdom and more modern mm-hmm. wisdom and got it all together and said, How can we best You know, make a government that matches, that that balances man's tendencies in a way that produces the best result. And that, yeah, Kirk does a great job of explaining why that's not, it's both new and old. And he goes into the two constitutional principles that are at the root of of any understanding of American constitutionalism. First is that government should be limited to let people make their own decisions in most areas of life. Mm-hmm. And the second is that government power should mostly be at the lower and local levels, delegated only yeah. upward when necessary. Yeah, He talks about you can change other things on the, the tree that this creates, but these things are the roots. And if you start digging into the roots, you have a real problem. Things fall over, mm-hmm. things fall apart. That's that's the fight that we're still having, though. So, I mean, you see that, and we'll see that until November of 2020, people are talking about our constitutional roots and whether they are good or bad whether they should be sustained or whether they need to be ripped up by the roots and start over mhm it's obvious which side the conservatives fall on in that debate
1: yeah because we're also much more comfortable with the idea that some localities will make different choices than others and so there will be kind of a, a different blossomings you know here and there there might be you know, a different feel to the society or, you know, there might be different, let's say, rights and responsibilities when power is uh, devolved to the local level, the little platoons versus, you know, this grander idea, this grander scheme of everyone's going to be equal and outcomes will be the same. And we just, it's, it's like a, you know, a bug on my leg. It drives me crazy to think that that in one city you know in Texas is going to just be different than this other town in in uh upstate New York or something like that and i think conservatives we are pretty comfortable with that idea and i think it's actually kind of cool mm-hmm. you know let them do them and you do you
0: <laughs> yeah there's a hu- there's and, a humility there too where you know we're we're saying here's what i think's right and i'm going to try and bring that about in my town and in my state but other people have other ideas and we'll see how they work out and you know everybody's trying to get the same goal they're all trying to get justice they're all trying to get a, a strong nation that protects people's rights and if people have different ways of going about it okay let's let's see how it works and we can learn from each other you know rather than mm-hmm. the the collectivist the utopian who says i have all the answers here they are do them mm-hmm. or go to jail
1: yep And he says in in those scenarios with collectivism, there's no real community. He says real community is governed by voluntary associations Mm -hmm. and not by compulsion. Obviously, it's a theme that we've hit on multiple times. Uh, The Nisbet in particular, you know, Edmund Burke. We don't have, if power is, you know, constantly moved to the federal level where it's easier to win and and have these broad um, monolithic results well, it's tough for people to have real community and, and, you know, engagement. So, but he has he has another line here uh, one of the other tenets of conservatism, which I found really interesting. He says, the American conservative feels that his country ought to set an example to the world, but ought not to try to remake the world in its image. (laughs) That really jumped out at me, you know, and especially in the context of the Bush doctrine and, trying to spread democracy around the world you know at the at the time i remember feeling uncomfortable you know we've talked about this before i wouldn't say i you know i opposed the war by any means but i was very uncomfortable with the whole situation just because it just it felt like it didn't feel super conservative to me to you know the idea that on the other hand we have these you know values of constitutionalism and individualism and the free market and
0: it's kind of like why wouldn't you want to share and yeah so i get that but. i remember kind of thinking the same i i supported the wars and they seemed like good ideas i at the time i knew it was wilsonian and i didn't like wilson <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i knew it didn't work out for him but i thought well but it's true i mean we're we're not imposing we're not imposing anything but freedom and, and who could hate that right i mean because yeah. You don't even have to use freedom. You you can still do what people tell you if you want to. We just want to give you the right not to. Well, Sometimes like a lot of people don't like that, so we were wrong about that one maybe. But it it's a seductive thought when you and that you know when you get sure of yourself and you look at the system and the growth of liberty around the world. And, you know since the end of the Cold War, like wow, this is like like Fukuyama's book was getting into. Like this is this is the future. This is mm-hmm. what everyone wants. This is the final destination of mankind. And uh, I think Kirk would have <clears throat> maybe based on what we have here, he might have cautioned against a little of that hubris that uh, we on the right did get into. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, yeah, He says, The conservative does not aspire to domination of the world, nor does he relish the prospect of a world reduced to a single pattern of government and civilization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's more of that Burkean diversity. Uh, one country's going to do it one way, another is going to do it a different way, and, and that's okay. Neither one of them has to conform to the other.
1: Mm-hmm. And Burke would see that, uh, or probably argue that the society has to develop organically, and if it, if it doesn't crop up organically, and you try to impose it from the top, it's always doomed to fail, because it, it's not part of the tr- their tradition. It's not hasn't been handed down. It's not something they view as theirs that, that they need to preserve and protect. Instead, it's new ideas that may sound good, but then you, you know, quickly move back to more of your comfort zone or where mm-hmm. you've always
0: been. And, and uh, maybe that we should have, we should have remembered Burke and Tocqueville more in those times. And I think Kirk yeah. remembers them here in what he's writing.
1: Mm-hmm. Doi also says men and women are not perfectible. This is a conservative tenant. Men and women are not perfectible. We are creatures of mingled good and evil. And as a corollary, political institutions are not perfectible. Now, I think that many, many on the left would look at that and in horror and (laughs) say, well, then, you know, you guys are just completely fine with, you know, abject poverty and, and the domination of the rich over the over the have-nots and i don't think that's what he's saying i think i think what he's saying is the idea that government is just this huge motherboard where you can turn this tweak this dial and pull that lever something we've talked about many times you know just just by t- tweaking the levels of this or that dial that we can have these outcomes that are you know, completely equal and serve all these purposes. And I think what he's saying is you should, you should just know that you will never get to a point where you're, where it's perfect or even close to perfect. You know, it's just we're we're human beings and human beings are not blank slates. There is human nature and that human nature is mingled with good and evil. You know, we can be, we can behave good in many, let's say most contexts, but, We've seen throughout history that what you would consider good and, you know, average people can do some pretty bad things under other circumstances. Our political institutions are never going to be perfect. And what we need to do is structure them in such a way that we bring out the good in people and mitigate
0: the evil. Yeah. And it kind of ties into one of the earlier point about power corrupting. Is it, you know, we should power corrupts and, Humanity is change, changeable, not changeable, but uh, they contain both good and evil. So if, if power brings out the evil in people, it it kind of goes back to the point that we should divide power because if you give too much of it to one person, eventually he'll go wrong. Or if he doesn't, the one who comes after him will. And Mm -hmm. that is, these all kind of interrelate and that's, that's something that, uh, well, I mean, if we get back to what what uh, Thomas Sowell was talking about, about how people think, content- people on the on the left think contentions matter a lot more. So they're okay with giving more uh, consolidated power to one person or one group, and they're okay with more upturning tradition, taking away local power because people really mean well and they're trying to do good things. And that's what, like you were saying, when they when we say that we accept that society's not perfectible. They look at that and saying and say, well, you must like bad results.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: We don't like bad results. We just don't think that their ways are going to achieve any better results and will quite likely achieve worse ones. Exactly. Yeah. So Kirk yeah. makes a point. We, the conservative is suspicious of all utopian schemes. He does not believe that by the power of positive law, we can solve all the problems of humanity. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that's right. And that's, that's hard to argue with.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. So in chapter two, he returns to a theme that we've touched on intermittently, and that is religious faith. He says, "Not all conservatives are religious, but there could be no conservatism without a religious foundation." Now, this is a question that I put posed put to us before: Is that actually true? Probably is. So, what does that mean for the future of conservatism? He says. Conservatism and religion cannot be kept in separate compartments. Humans have a fallen nature and, you know, what we need is to, in in order to nurture virtue, I mean, we need religion. So what do you think?
0: I don't think, yeah, where he, where he, he starts out saying you don't have to be conservative to be religious, you don't have to be religious to be conservative. I don't think he believes that because the rest of the chapter is really about how conservatism and religion are two sides of the same coin. And I, I think his view of of conservatism needs a religion, and not necessarily a Christian religion, but it's certainly, it's definitely influenced by Christianity more than anything else. Um. Yeah, I, I, I think he doesn't give us a good answer of what else it could be besides religion. So, I think to Kirk, religion is necessary, even if not everyone is particularly following it. Mm-hmm. He says the, the founding fathers were mostly profoundly religious. And I, I don't know if that's true. They did go to church. That's mm-hmm. not always the same thing. But as as Murray pointed out in our, our previous reading, um they enjoyed the idea of religion, even if they weren't particularly devout. So I think I think Kirk is attributing more de- devoutness and piety to our founding fathers than maybe more recent historians give them credit for but they they both agree that there's that there's a need for something and that's that getting back to the first principle we talked about that men are governed by moral laws nations are governed by moral laws you can't have a moral law that's an absolute without something outside of just one man's opinion and that's we've been talking about this for weeks and weeks um i'm yeah. not sure he gives us much of a choice beyond religion you know what did you think
1: I agree with you. I mean, we we read Richard Weaver, we read Leo Strauss. I mean, these are their preoccupations. Is okay, if not religion, then what? Because because uh, society, in order to function well, needs needs something to unify. You know, needs a moral law that they can you know line up behind for happy people, happy you know individuals, and happy communities and societies. We need some higher truths or some more deep and lasting values to that we can share together. I like um if not religion then Yeah, world.
0: I like his point a, a professed Christian cannot be a professed utopian. I think that's true. And I think that's that's one of the ways mm-hmm. Christianity dovetails with uh limited government and the republic. So we we know mm-hmm. this world is broken. And that gets to his point, man, is not perfectible, the world is not perfectible. We can do better by each other. We can act better individually, but it's not a. I think a religion informs us, especially the Western religions, that this is you know this is what it is. We are a fallen world. Mm-hmm. There's going to mm-hmm. be bad guys. There's going to be bad ideas. Mm-hmm. But the the point he comes at after that, I thought was really interesting. He says even if a, a utopia were achievable, we would probably hate it. <laughs> and he says, what really makes men and women love life is the battle itself. The struggle to bring order out of disorder, to strive for right against evil. If ever that struggle should come to an end, we, we should expire of boredom. Right. Yeah. That reminded me of like, what Fukuyama said about Nietzsche, you know, about the struggle. We want it. Yep. We want to do something. We want to prove our greatness, but also we want to, if we're, being our best selves, we want to prove our greatness in a way that helps other people and does good and and you know fights for for order and then right and, and justice. Hmm. So what do you do when everything's you know if this if these utopias that socialists are always us, promising us ever came to be, what then? we just sit around watching like reality tv or whatever like what what is there to do well
1: and again though it also goes back that we we would just create new pathologies right i mean the, humans, yes. humans are never satisfied regardless of what it is there's no such thing as utopia because you could never get to a point where people are like Ah, this is. I'm totally satisfied with everything. You know, no, we'll find out something else to complain about. You know, we'll.
0: we'll... Yeah, you don't. You don't see any decline in in depression and in anxiety in a richer society compared to a poorer one. and Some people would say it's even in worse in a rich yeah. society. Sort of as a a reaction to the fact that we don't have to worry about starvation and and war and and you know plagues. So, well, what the body wants to worry about something? We've got a mental immune system that wants to react against something and fight something. So we'll start, we'll fight ourselves if we have to.
1: Yeah. yeah, as my dad always says, you know, you'll you'll complain about the scratch on your gold bar. You know, I mean, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll find something. You can solve some problems. Yeah. Social media. Wow, you know, you have access to people all day, every day, and yeah. what's that done? <laughs> new new <laughs> neuroticisms <so> and. <laughs> All right, so there's one more, one last point that I'd like to get to, and see if you have any others. In his chapter five, he talks about the family. I think we're going to read a book pretty soon in in the next few weeks about uh, that's focused on this. But he says the family is the natural source and core of any good society. He calls it the primary little platoon. Family is the principal instrument of moral instruction, ordinary education, and satisfactory economic life, and you know he criticizes the those on the left that he'll call you know sometimes even well-intentioned people what they want to do is turn the political state have the political state assume all these responsibilities that the family possesses and i am a huge believer you know granted i'm you know family man you know middle-aged dad whatever but i just think that this is 100% right that values are taught in the home and everything starts in the home you know you have to learn to live with people. Uh, you have to learn to ne- you know, negotiate and you know, my kids constantly are fighting and I have to figure out ways to you know, how do you play this game or what are the rules and and it's in the family the parents are able to teach. I think my own personal view is that the disintegration of the family is a major cause of, you know, many of our social ills today. I don't know what you think.
0: Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I think he's right on here. It, it's where you learn how to act right. You know, I mean, so there's, you see somebody, you know, acting ridiculously and people say he doesn't have good home training. Yeah, And I think that's right. I think I, everything that we come to understand as children and then later, even as adults comes out of the understanding of a family. And if your family's messed up, it's going to be hard for you to get those good principles mm-hmm. right. You know, if your dad is never around or mom's on drugs, you know, it's, it, you get, you're, you're behind the eight ball in life. You know, the thumb is on the scale. You can still turn out good. People do, you know, and people overcome a lot of obstacles in their, in their upbringing, but it, it makes it harder, I think. And like it, the family as sort of the precursor to patriotism mm-hmm. is, I mean, if you can, if you, if you grow up in an environment of, of love and trust and, you know, healthy ideas, it's easier, I think, to go out into the world and to, and to trust other people who are not related to mm-hmm. you and to and interact with people honestly and, and not think everyone's out to get you. It's, I mean, even in even in religion, I mean, Christians call God our father, you know, it's a it's a familial metaphor for life, you know, and it's sort of a you know, our way of understanding the Almighty is that it is sort of as the, you know, the all-protecting father. And that's I mean, that's an ideal way to grow up is, you know, it a child who knows that his father and mother are, are looking out for him They have his best interests at heart they're you know they're working hard they're providing for the family uh, and i i think kirk is correct that collectivists often want to interpose themselves within those family relationships they want to i you mean know, the one-child pol- one policy in china was ostensibly about overpopulation but it also Got to the point that after two generations, you don't you not only don't have any brothers and sisters, you don't have any first cousins.
1: Yeah, right.
0: After three generations, you don't have any second cousins. Now, like when you're, who do you trust in life? You know, when you're, if you're trying to start a business, if you're trying to start a movement, the people you can first confess these heterodox views to are usually the ones you know won't betray you. Mm-hmm. And that's your 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 people, your own family. So if you don't even have that let alone have one that's broken, but they only, you know, the, the policies they had in China, they didn't even have these people. You're all just atoms floating around, and the only thing that can unify you is the state. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's there's so much there in that, that notion of family, and I, I look forward to getting more into that in, in future weeks with some of our other readings. But I think Kirk makes a, a hugely important point that is routinely ignored by a lot of people today.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I look forward to talking more. I'll just say that you know, I'm, I'm I'm 100% with Charles Murray. He says, you know, the the elites they actually do maintain traditional nuclear families, but they don't preach what they practice. I think that I think we should we would benefit as a society from maybe a little judgmentalism, not government intervention, but uh, a culture shift to sort of say, yes, there are different types of families, but this is what you should be striving for, you know not every it can't work for it. You know, sometimes it's, things don't work out, but this is what sh- we should all aim our sights on, you know, families, two-parent households, that, that sort of thing. And tr- maybe try to get some progress to reclaim some of the ground we've lost, but all right, we're late. So what's your, uh, what are your closing thoughts for Russell Kirk?
0: It's kind of something you alluded to earlier on is that when Kirk was writing, there was a lot of people writing against communism and, there were a lot of people who had just finished writing against fascism he was writing for conservatism. And that takes, that took a lot more intellectual effort in those days. I mean, a lot of the the things that we went through this episode, we've heard before, but we've heard them before, partly because of Kirk and because of other people from that era, uh, Hayek and and, and Buckley, they were, they were doing the work that we are benefiting from today by saying, for sure, if we're not, that and we're not this what are we and obviously that's the point of this podcast too is what does it mean to be conservative so he was he was articulating a positive vision rather than just differentiating us from other people that we obviously don't like Uh, yeah it's we 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 do owe an intellectual debt to kirk and his contemporaries
1: completely agree he he did the, the hard work of trying to distill all these these different principles and values and this book is very clinical and straightforward and I I have a much deeper appreciation for him after this. Yeah, I agree. We, we, we owe him a of dude. And for those listeners who haven't really dived into, you know, historical conservatism, this is a good book to start with because it really hits on more or less all the themes from all the other books that we continually read and, you know, uh, offline I was saying to Kyle that this reads a whole lot like our season one recap <laughs> hmm. and probably sound like our season two recap, you know, going back and identifying, okay, well, what, what, what do we have here? And he's done that. And this book basically like lays it all out. So
0: and it, it's, it's pretty short too. Yep. Very so if you, short. If you don't have a lot of time, this is a good one to dive into.
1: Yep. For next time we're going to read a book by Ross Douthat and Raihan Salam called Grand New Party. That was published in 2008. So join us then. Thanks.